For, I have to ask, this is always the, the, uh, the pastor worries, but did everyone behave while I was gone? You wouldn't tell me anyway, anyway, so, um, but thankful for Joe for preaching uh, one of the weeks, and also for Pastor Denise Hess, it's always a blessing to know that, uh, that you're in good hands um, when I'm not here, and we have so many who can preach the word so faithfully and so well, and they've taken you through Ruth chapter 2, and to just catch up, if you weren't with us, to bring us up to speed, in terms of this beautiful yet short story in the Old Testament, Naomi, Naomi is a woman who has lost her husband and two sons in Moab. She's returned to her hometown of Bethlehem empty-handed and bitter. So bitter, in fact, that she changed her name to a word that means bitter, Mara. The only hope, the only thing that she actually has left to her name when she comes back is a dedicated and clinging Moabite named Ruth, her daughter-in-law. They're dirt poor, and out of their desperate need, as we learned in chapter 2, Ruth decides to go and work out in a field. In Israel, the law of gleaning, which you probably heard about, provided for the poor and the widowed by requiring landowners to leave the corners of their fields untouched while harvesting. This that then let the poor to have the opportunity to gather the remainder of the grain that was left over after the reapers had completed their work. And Naomi probably taught this system to Ruth on their walk back from Moab, and Ruth committed to her mother-in-law, is determined to glean for food as, she, as soon as she and Naomi get settled in Bethlehem. With no idea where she is or where she's going, Ruth happens upon the field of a man called Boaz. And the day that Ruth actually shows up to work in his field is, providentially, the same day that Boaz shows up to inspect his field. And Boaz is a single, wealthy, godly man. And he does more than allow Ruth to glean, he notices Ruth, and he takes an interest in her. When he learns who she is, he makes sure that she's protected from the people that would try to take advantage of her. He makes sure that she is provided for. He even invites her to lunch. He's kind and thoughtful. And this continues for the next six weeks of the barley harvest. By the end of chapter two, the issue of food seems to be resolved for now, but as we get to chapter 3, time has passed and time is running out. The harvest is over and Ruth's temporary job in Boaz's field is nearly finished. Added to all of this, there's still one thing that's missing. Ruth has no husband. Naomi is still without an heir. Without a husband, there's no hope of having children to carry on the name of her deceased husband. And in this culture, this was the greatest of all tragedies. And so as we get to the start of chapter 3, we sense a turning point. We wonder, we're meant to wonder if something more will develop. And in that spirit, I invite us back into the story of Ruth, starting with verse 1 in chapter 3. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to the lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth 
approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, which are rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be, anyone could be recognized, and he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter. Wait until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Beloved, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It seems to Naomi that the best shot at finding a husband for Ruth is Boaz. After all, Boaz is their kinsman. He is a relative of Naomi's. And as such, he has certain obligations to Ruth and Naomi. God's law said that if a man died without a son to inherit his property then his brother or another close male relative should marry the widow and father a child to bear the name of the deceased man and inherit his property. It was the kinsman's duty, in fact, to buy back the land that had been sold to another family. It was necessary for a kinsman to redeem the land in order to prevent the alienation of that land and the extinction of the family name. By buying it back, however, and this is important to note, the kinsman would not come into possession of the land himself, but would hold it in trust for his son by his new life, by his new wife, excuse me. Besides being their kinsman, though, Naomi recognizes that Boaz has shown every sign of caring for Ruth. He's already shown Ruth special favor, and so Naomi comes up with an ingenious plan to get Ruth and Boaz together. And it's been tried many times. <laughs> she tells Ruth to prepare herself, take a bath, put on some perfume, dress in your best clothes, and go and spend an evening with Boaz on the threshing floor. Now, tonight, to understand just the context of what's happening tonight, at this part of the, of, of the season of the harvest, Boaz is going to be winnowing barley, we're told, at the, thresh, at the threshing floor. And winnowing was a step in the process of processing the grain, whereby the grain was separated from the inedible parts. And, and typically this was done in the evening because the wind tended to increase in the evenings in Israel. And what would happen is you can picture Boaz outside throwing stalks of grain up into the air, and as the wind blew the chaff away, the heavier grain, the good stuff, would fall to the floor. After this tiring work was completed, Boaz would go to sleep, 
as Naomi predicted, and he would go to sleep, in fact, next to the pile of grain that he had collected from winnowing. The next morning, he would cart it away, but in the meantime, it was a customary practice for field owners and their workers to sleep near all the harvested grain in order to defend it, defend their harvest from robbers and thieves. So Ruth is supposed to go to this party, and it was a celebration, a celebration of the harvest. She's to wait until it's over. When everyone's gone to sleep is when Ruth has her opportunity to approach Boaz. As he sleeps on the threshing floor next to his grain, Ruth, we're told, places herself at the feet of Boaz, and she pulls back the sheet and lays down at his feet. Now, beyond, if you don't understand what's going on here, you just do a little bit of Bible study, which can be a dangerous thing. Um, People think all kinds of things in terms of what's going on here based on the the emphasis of pulling back his feet. Um, There are different things that could be meant by this, but if you look at this as a whole, there's nothing indecent going on here. Um, some want to suggest that, shall we say, a conjugal visit took place in the, on the threshing floor, but that's not at all what this story is about. There's nothing immoral going on here. First of all, you, one of the things I want you to notice, in case you maybe, maybe heard this or, or wonder if it's just Boaz and Ruth, is there's more people on the threshing floor than just Boaz. Um, he's not alone in the room. In fact, there are probably whole families camping out that night. You'll notice Naomi tells Ruth to carefully note the place where Boaz is lying. If he was the only person there, she wouldn't have to note all that carefully where he was lying. But she has to make sure to know where he is. She has to know where to find him on the threshing floor. And while uncovering the feet was, could, could be interpreted as an invitation into something a little more intimate, it was also a symbolic act of presenting oneself for marriage. So what Ruth is doing, what Naomi tells her to do, is indicate to Boaz that you are willing to be his wife. And this is not considered a presumptuous gesture on Ruth's part. As as it plays out, Boaz is not shocked at all. He's honored by what Ruth does. And when she, when she, he says, when he wakes up startled, and I I have to say, maybe it's just me, but the funny part of the story is imagining (laughs) Boaz waking up and finding a woman at his feet. Who are you? Um, Ruth responds with the phrase, you heard it, spread the corner of your garment over me. Now, this expression is found other places in the Bible, and this is basically an idiom, biblical idiom for marry me. Ruth is basically asking for an engagement ring. It's the equivalent in our culture of an engagement ring. And when a man did this, when he spread his, the corner of his garment over a woman, he was symbolically demonstrating the willingness to lovingly cover that woman with his life. Now, just to be clear, Ruth is not proposing to Boaz. It's a real fine line here, though. She's asking him to propose. And I won't ask for a show of hands of how many women have had to nudge their man-to-be to step up. Because that's pretty much what's taking place here. Naomi tells Ruth, Ruth gets there, and Ruth basically says something along the lines of, I would love for you to come and invite me to be part of your life as your wife. In fact, the word that Ruth uses, interestingly for covering here, is the same word back in chapter 2 that Boaz uses when he speaks of the wings of God. Boaz had said to Ruth when he met her, he says a word of blessing. He says, may your wages be full from the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's what Boaz says the first time that he meets Ruth. May your wages be full from the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth uses that same word wings. It's almost as if she's in essence asking Boaz to become those wings. She's saying, perhaps you're the means of protection that you prayed for me earlier. Maybe you're the guy. And again, I want to ask how many women had to tell the guy that they loved, hello, it's you, it's you. 
Boaz catches on quickly. He's quick to calm her fears, and he begins by blessing her again and speaking of her kindness. Boaz is touched, we learn, because he sees himself as older and Ruth as younger, and though he clearly has liked and admired her, he's obviously thought, you can read between the lines, that Ruth was out of his league. He thought for sure that she wouldn't be interested in an older guy like him, but Ruth is finding, uh, Ruth is finding out, much to her delight and relief, that Boaz has feelings for her too. But then there's this moment, and we'll get to it next week in chapter 4, where Boaz gets technical with Ruth. It almost feels like he's kind of worming his way out of this opportunity to offer a, wedding, a marriage proposal. He says he's eager and willing to marry Ruth, but Boaz notice, notes that technically, legally, there's something, someone nearer in kin to Ruth than he is. And according to tradition, this guy actually has first dibs on marrying Ruth. Under the law, the closer relative had to at least be given the option of choosing to marry and to redeem Ruth. And so he promises to resolve the matter the next day. And in fact, he tells her to stay at the threshing floor until morning. And again, why does he tell her this? And some people have learned in Bible study, he tells her this because, you know, something really, people are going to start to gossip about what went on there. It's probably more likely, late at night, early in the morning, that Boaz doesn't want a young, attractive woman walking home in the middle of the night. That's simple. He doesn't want her in that kind of situation because he loves and protects her. Her reputation may be in question too, but again, it's amazing how much we read into this story. And I think we read into this story because by chapter 3, all of a sudden you turn around and Ruth has become a full-fledged love story. You know, it's like Sleepless in Bethlehem or when Boaz met Ruth or something like that. And it is a full-fledged love story. You know, we have, you can read it between the lines, that's what makes this story beautiful, attraction. There's romance, and if I can say this and not get in trouble later, there's even a little sexual tension here. Love is in the air, in Ruth to be sure, but beloved, this morning, I want us to look carefully within the story to appreciate the deeper revelation of love that is on display. I'm talking about the kind of love that drives Naomi to guide and coach Ruth towards Boaz. You know, some read this very quickly and they're quick to argue that Naomi is just a self-serving, scheming mother-in-law. Some even go so far to suggest that Naomi's intentions are that Ruth sleep with Boaz. And I, I just don't, I don't know why we go here. Because what I see in this story is not a self-scheming mother-in-law, but I see a woman, a mother, who's willing to sacrifice for her daughter-in-law. What you need to understand is Naomi had the prior claim upon the kinsman. Naomi's the one who has the claim upon the kinsman, but she surrenders it in favor of Ruth. Earlier in the story, Naomi, you remember, prayed a blessing for Ruth, that Ruth would find rest, that Ruth would find the security and abundance of marriage and having a family of her own. And Naomi takes the initiative and seeks the possibility for her prayer for Ruth to be answered as she sets aside her own rights and claims for the sake of her daughter-in-law's well-being. That's the kind of love that I want you to see in this story. The kind of love that I want you to see in this story, the kind of love that I'm talking about, is the kind of love that provokes Ruth not to behave badly. And in our fixation on what uncovering the feet means, we miss the most important part of what Ruth does. Ruth isn't behaving badly. She's acting boldly in her encounter with Boaz. Did you pay attention? Naomi told Ruth to make the first move. But then she said, wait. Wait until Boaz tells you what to do. Do you notice? 
That Ruth goes beyond what Naomi tells her to do. In the moment when, when Ruth is faced with Boaz's initial question, who are you? Ruth not only gives an answer, she takes an enormous risk. She bears her feelings and risks rejection. In fact, she breaks a number of social taboos as well. She's younger. He's older. She's a servant. He is her boss. She is a Moabite. He is an Israelite. She is poor. He is rich. And yet she crosses all these lines and puts herself out there because of her concern for her mother-in-law, Naomi. As Boaz himself recognizes and states, this is the greater kindness that he's referring to. Naomi, uh, Ruth, could have pursued a younger man. She could have looked for some young stud. But she chose Boaz out of loyalty to Naomi. In reminding Boaz that he was a kinsman, Ruth is in essence not only asking for him to ask her to marry him, but she's in essence acknowledging the fact that their firstborn would be offered to Naomi to continue the line, to preserve the family name of her deceased husband, Elimelech, not Ruth's husband. The kind of love that I'm talking about is the kind of love that Boaz exhibits here, the kind of love that causes Boaz to step out of his life of comfort and privilege for the sake of a foreigner. We often miss this in the story. Some have speculated, some, some read this and speculate based on the command in Deuteronomy 25 about a kinsman redeemer that Boaz was obligated to marry Ruth, that Ruth was simply demanding her legal rights. So she basically sets him up, and that's what Naomi had in mind, to kind of corner Boaz, hey, to step up and do your legal obligation, and that that's what takes place here that Boaz is simply doing what he was legally obligated to do. But this isn't true. If you read Deuteronomy 25, the law states that the deceased brother was obligated to marry the widow. But Boaz wasn't the brother of Ruth's deceased husband or Naomi's deceased husband. Therefore, he had no legal obligation to marry her, to redeem her family's land. The should is not a, is not a must. On the contrary, this duty was fulfilled voluntarily. Boaz chooses to get involved in all this. And when we get to chapter 4, you're very much going to see what I mean by get involved in all this. Boaz is not someone who is wanting for anything, perhaps a wife, and yet he chooses to, to get involved. And he chooses to treat Ruth as something more than a Moabite servant working in his fields. Boaz before and Boaz here puts his reputation and fortunes on the line in embracing a foreigner as an equal, in championing Ruth's dignity and worth, and as, a, as we'll see in chapter 4, fighting for her rights. That's the kind of love that's on display in the story of Ruth. Here in Ruth, what I'm trying to say is we have much more than love at first sight. We have in this story the revelation of a powerful biblical word that perhaps you've heard before. It's a word that Boaz uses in regards to Ruth. It's the word he uses for kindness. It's the biblical word hesed. We have on display the revelation of hesed, a biblical word which means true love, a love based on devotion, a love based on covenant and commitment. This love that we see on display in Ruth, this hesed, is a love born out of months of watching each other in the muck and mire of real life. This is love born out of the sacrifice and co compassion of everyday choices. This is a love that we see that emerges, that comes out of acting out of the interests of others. 
Naomi is concerned to find Ruth's security. Ruth is concerned that Naomi will get someone to carry on her husband's name. Boaz is concerned and willing to fulfill his responsibility to the clan and champions Ruth's dignity and worth. Everybody is concerned about the interest of others. I think this is powerful. It may seem simplistic to you this morning, but to me it's poignant. Because we live at a time more and more, as I raise my own children, as I pastor, we live at a time when we talk about love and romance a lot. But when we talk about love and romance, I don't hear us talking much about kindness and loyalty anymore. It's almost as if these ideas, do you get that sense in our discussion in our culture? When we talk about love, when we see love on display, it's almost as if the ideas of kindness and loyalty are antithetical to love and romance. The focus in love and romance predominantly is more and more on what I want, what feels good for me. We think that we fall in love. That's how we like to talk about love. We fall into love. And if all of a sudden you start to put duty or obligation on love, then we start to say that's not real love at all. But these people in our story, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, these flesh and blood people have bigger concerns than their own feelings. Bigger concerns than their own wants. They're concerned about loyalty and kindness too. And nowhere... And that's what makes the story beautiful. Nowhere do we get a sense that all of this concern about commitment, loyalty, and kindness takes away from the romance. There's lots of romance here exactly because there is loyalty, kindness, and commitment. You know, in many ways, and, and Joe went right there because that's what I intended to evoke with the title, this, what we have here between Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz is a practical outworking of what Paul was trying to say years and years later to struggling churches in Corinth. Love is patient. Love is kind. These verses from 1 Corinthians 13, I've told you this before, I find it ironic that as a pastor, this is the most frequently quoted or people wanted at their wedding. They want to have 1 Corinthians 13 said at their wedding. And I find it ironic because Paul's words here were not written to a couple about to get married. They were written to a church that was struggling, struggling to get along. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13 are part of a larger point that he's trying to make about the significance and meaning of the love of God being revealed through our actions toward each other. To bring it back to our story, it is through the devotion that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz express towards each other that the Hesed, the true love of God, is on display. That's why this story is in our Bible, among many reasons. So we can see a picture of what true love looks like. But more than offering a definition of love, that would be enough itself, more than offering a definition of true love, Ruth's journey reveals that Hesed, true love, is, as the song says, what makes the world go round. Covenant love is the glue that holds everything together. Throughout this, this book, I, I've held up to you two different things, and, and it's been interesting. I've held up to you that in Ruth, we have two things that we can look at. Throughout the story, we witness the reality of God's providence. And remember, providence is the guidance of God, the outworking of God's purposes in all of life. And we see this in Ruth in a couple of examples. God's providence on display. The Lord's the one who arranged for Ruth and Boaz to meet. Don't think that Ruth just happened upon any field. Don't think that Ruth just happened upon Boaz's field on the day in which he was coming to the field to inspect it. 
The Lord is the one who allowed Ruth to be singled out by Boaz for special treatment. The Lord was the one who made the provisions in his law about a kinsman redeemer. God's providence is all over the pages of Ruth. But we've also witnessed in Ruth, and we've talked about it, the significance of the choices that we make as human beings. Naomi chooses to go back to Bethlehem even though she is bitter, even though she is angry with God. Ruth chooses to cling to her mother-in-law even though she's going to a place, to a people that she does not know. She'd probably be better off going to her own home country. Boaz chooses, though he doesn't have to get involved, he could skirt his responsibility. He chooses to redeem Ruth and Naomi. God's providence Human decisions. Isn't it funny how we can appreciate these concepts separately? But it gets harder when we try to put them both together. You start to ask questions like, okay, if there's God's providence and yet my choices matter, how much do my choices matter? How, I mean, how, how far, I mean, how, how much significance? I mean, can I mess up to a point where God can't fix that? And okay, if God's in control, okay, what's the extent of God's influence and control over my life? Can I actually, can I actually do anything outside of the will of God? Can I, can I mess up that? Can I, can I thwart what God wants to happen? We talk about that. Unable to reconcile both God's providence and our human decisions, how that we're unable to figure out how these fit together. Most of us, as we do with all things, we tend to live between the two extremes. You know, some of us, and maybe this speaks to you, some of us are passive in the face of God's providence and our decisions. We're passive, and how we live our lives is we wait for God to do something. The Lord is in control, we like to say, and therefore the Lord will do what the Lord will do. And because God's in control, we don't think much about our choices. Figuring that God will work it all out anyway clean up our mess, correct our lapses in judgment. Or if we say to ourselves, look, God's in control, and if God has something for me to do, something to show me, a place to lead me, he'll make it obvious. He'll tap me on the shoulder. Unfortunately, this kind of mentality presumes upon God, and it robs us of our vigilance and our anticipation if you're someone who basically doesn't think much about God, figures God will just let you know, isn't it easy to become comfortable? Isn't it easy to play it safe? Isn't it easy at times to simply ignore the signs? To deafen ourselves to the voice of God? And yet in, in this story, in the story of Ruth, in the midst of clearly God's providence at work, in the midst of this story, God's clearly at work, but we also see Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz stepping into opportunities, taking risks. So that one extreme doesn't work. But then maybe there's the other extreme. The other extreme may be where you live. We tend to be more active. You know, we spend our days working really hard to try to figure out God's will for our life. You know, we say to ourselves, God helps those who help themselves. And so we analyze every situation in our life. Is this a door opening or a door closing? How many of you have spent hours trying to figure that out? Is this a door opening or a door closing? Is God opening a door or is God closing a door? What does God want me to do today? We can become so fixated on trying to get inside the mind of God that we find ourselves mapping out every event in our lives. We can get so fixated that every verse of scripture that we hear becomes a clue to unlocking what is happening, 
what we have to do to be at the center of God's will in a particular moment. And I'm not saying that scripture doesn't guide us. I'm talking about where you are every single moment from where you park to the tie you put on to the shoes you wear to who you see, you're trying to make sure you're inside of God's will. This kind of orientation is also troublesome because when you get this fixated on trying to get inside the mind of God, which is impossible, we can actually, because it is impossible, start putting words in God's mouth rather than waiting on the Lord's timing and work. No one has ever experienced that before, have you? God told me to. The Spirit is leading me to. Anyone want to acknowledge any times where you got that wrong? We can get ahead of the Lord. With the best of intentions, we can and we do create self-fulfilling prophecies in the Lord's name rather than actually resting in the will of God. And in the story of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, we see God at work. We see them taking advantage of opportunities and risking, but we also see, and it's interesting at the end of chapter 3, Naomi's words to Ruth, wait, wait. If you can relate to either one of these two extremes, or if you fluctuate between both of them, which would be me, let the witness of the story of Ruth recalibrate your approach to life and to the Lord. Rather than fixating on getting inside the mind of God, let us enter into the heart of God. That's what Ruth is about. The repeated attribute or character trait of the Lord that is lifted up again and again in Scripture is that God is love. That the Lord is a God of hesed, a covenant God, a God of steadfast, loving kindness. The key to abundant life, the key to living the redeemed life, which is our life in Christ, is not anticipating God's next move. And it's not just simply saying God's going to do what God's going to do. The key to the living, the abundant life, the redeemed life, resurrection life in Christ is coming to understand and to trust in God's heart, in God's love, in the Lord's steadfast commitment to our well-being. Have you embraced the love of God this morning? Have you embraced the love of God as more than mere sentimentality? Have you really gotten lost in the depths of this God who loves you in a way that goes beyond emotion? Do you recognize the continual love of God being poured out into this world, into your life on a regular basis? Is your posture towards each day in the soul of your being, our feelings fluctuate, but is your posture towards each day in the core of your being one of gratitude, one of confidence, one of joy, because you recognize, you see the signs, you see fingerprints everywhere of the love of God at work in this world and in your life. Here's a quick benchmark, a quick benchmark of whether our hearts are aligned with the Lord. And there are many, but here's a quick one. Are you, are we waiting for God to work in our lives? Are we waiting for God to work in our lives? Think about that sentence again. Are we waiting for God to work in our lives as if God was asleep? Or as if God's got something better to do right now and so we're waiting for him to finish with that and then work in our lives? Or are we waiting for God to work in our lives because we think there's something we have to do before God will work? Or do we recognize that when we say we're waiting for God to work, it's not we're waiting for God to work, we're waiting for us to be able to see how God is always at work in our lives.
When you understand this hesed, this covenant committed love of God, you understand that God isn't waiting to work, that God is always working, always lovingly committed to redeeming our lives, to bringing us into his presence and his will. That's the beauty of Ruth. Ruth, we get to see these intersections where Naomi and Ruth and Boaz are making real choices and stepping into opportunities, but all the while, God is at work. It's not like, okay, you've got to move first and then God will do something. God's at work the entire time. And how do they find themselves caught up in the work that God is doing? Love. If we get the love of God, if we truly rest, immerse ourselves in it, it transforms how we live how we face each day, how we make decisions. Love brings the providence of God, God outworking his purposes in this world, and the significance of our choices together. Instead of trying to specifically figure out what God wants me to do or the exact decisions I need to make to live a successful life, instead, I evaluate, I respond, and I engage every moment, every opportunity from God's covenantal heart, from the hesed, the steadfast loving kindness of God's character. In other words, how do I live my life each day? How do I live the redeemed life? I seek to live my life out of his love towards others. I don't focus on my own security and my own interests. I don't calculate the gains and benefits to me. I look beyond myself. And doesn't this beautifully align with what Jesus told us the kingdom of God was all about? Love God by loving your neighbor. Serve each other rather than lording over each other. Be last in order to be first. Give away what you have in order, rather than grasping for what you do not have. Act in compassion rather than in judgment. Beloved, where are you today? Where are you today? Are you at a point where it's decision time in your life? Are you sitting here this morning and you are on the verge of making a decision? Something small, something big. And you're struggling to know, what should I do? Is your life at this moment, today, in a holding pattern? Are you in that time, those seasons of life where you're anticipating, you're trying to figure out what the next step's going to be? You don't have to decide, but you're just trying to see where are things going to go next? And are you trying, are you struggling to figure out what that next step might be? Or maybe this morning you find yourself in that glorious place where you're just living in the moment. You're just living in the moment, going forward where the day takes you. Wherever you are, beloved, on the verge of a decision, looking for that next step in the moment, the word of the Lord this morning is act in love. Be in the center of, God, of God's will by exercising the essence of God's character, love. Sacrificial, risky committed love. That's the kind of love that we witness through Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. That's the kind of love that's on display when God is born as a baby in Bethlehem. That's the kind of love that's revealed when this same God in Christ gives his life for all the world on a cross at Calvary. That's the kind of love that redeems the universe when a stone is rolled away and the tomb is emptied. That's the kind of love, and I don't know if you caught it. Some of you murmured. I think you might have saw it. That's the kind of love that transforms a bitter woman, Naomi, who by her own lips comes back home empty-handed into, at the end of chapter 3, a redeemed woman who suddenly finds her life abundantly full. Did you catch what happened at the end of chapter 3? Ruth goes home 
with grain. It's not about the grain. Did you hear what Ruth said, Boaz said to say to Naomi? And it's not Boaz speaking to Naomi, it is God. Do not go home to your mother-in-law empty-handed. God is speaking and saying that's the kind of love. You think you came back empty and you're more full than you could possibly ever know. And that's what's yet to come in the story. Beloved, here in the story of Ruth, we see poignantly the love of God that never fails. I encourage you this morning to know that love, to rest in that love, to wait and work out of that love. Look at every opportunity that God puts before you as an exercise of his love towards someone in your life. Be like Naomi and put your own interests and rights aside for the sake of someone else's rest and well-being. Be like Ruth and take the risk of offering your hand and your heart, of committing yourself to another person for the sake of something larger than your own self-interest. Be like Boaz and step outside of your comfort zone crossing a line that you don't necessarily have to get involved in that may not be your business, but be willing to get involved, to lift someone else up, to fight for them, even if it might cost you something. Because if you step out, if you act, if we live out of the love of God, that's the kind of love that never fails. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Amen?